Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jason Moore to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Jason is an environmental historian and historical geographer at Binghamton University, where he is Professor of Sociology and leads the World Ecology Research Collective. Jason is author or editor, most recently, of Capitalism in the Web of Life, Anthropocene or Capitalocene, Nature History and the Crisis of Capitalism, and with Raj Patel, A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things. So thank you very much, Jason, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks, Fergal. It's a thrill to be here. Wonderful. Now, um, before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your, your, your work focus? Well, my name is Jason Moore. I remember the W if you're doing a search because it's a popular name. And I am a historian and a kind of uh, uh, ideological critic of capitalism uh, over its past five centuries of organizing power, profit, and life. At the root of my thinking and research over the past 30 years or so has been this big question. What are the origins? historically, of today's crisis? How are the political, economic, cultural uh, moments of that crisis implicated in webs of life? And then what are the long-term phases of development of capitalism? In other words, the successive great waves of fixing and creating anew those crises right up into the present moment, which in my view is an epical crisis of capitalism understood as a world ecology of power, profit, and life. Well, that's a, a tremendous body of work and, and, and very deep, profound questions. Hopefully, we'll get to touch on some of those questions in, the, in, the, in this discussion. Now, um, we're facing all kind of uh, interlocking environmental crises, disasters, and tremendous momentum on, on the, the weather and, and the climate front. I just wonder what in particular is on your mind right now that most worries you about this particular moment. Well, what most concerns me is the drive towards World War III. I've written about this in an essay on imperialism with and without cheap nature, that essentially what's happening is that the, uh, as you say, interlocking or mutually reinforcing crises of imperialism, of cheap nature, of the climate, 
they are all conditioning each other towards uh, uh, favoring a dynamic of world war expressed by the alliance, the unholy alliance of Davos and the World Economic Forum, Wall Street, the city, um, uh, the White House, the Pentagon, to uh, create a sort of militarized solution on the one hand to the problems, the crises of capitalism's cheap nature regime. And on the other, I think, to engineer a post-capitalist transition that will balance the costs of climate adaptation and mitigation on the bottom 80 to 90 percent of the world's peoples. That's deeply worrying. Um I guess many people would, 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 would understand the militarization and the, the, you know, sales of weapons, the, in the economic, whose economic interest that is, but not necessarily that that would actually eventually lead to war. You know, lots of drum beating, lots of noise, lots of threats, lots of ramping up sales. But why would it be in any of these parties' interest to actually uh, precipitate uh, a war, as you say, World War Three, which could be, which could, could you know, just destroy the planet. Right. Well, let's remember that capitalism is not only an absurd uh, social system in the web of life. That is, it's prem- predicated on the accumulation of wealth for the sake of the accumulation of still more wealth. That's the that's the capital part of capitalism. Uh, but that that process has always been advanced at the barrel of a gun. Uh, there's no such thing as free markets that that uh, capitalist business from its origins in the 16th century has always depended on armed force to create the conditions of a good business environment. So there's a sense in which that profound use of, as Rosa Luxemburg said, a force as a permanent weapon gives rise to all manner of irrational pathologies. And that's exactly what we're seeing Today, But there's a deeper rot at the core of mainstream sustainability and environmentalist thinking. So I'm not saying environmental justice, climate justice. There are, there's uh, probably in spirit, the sustainability agenda, so to speak, is a spirit of cooperation and harmony. But in practice, going back to the first Earth Day in 1970, Stockholm's Environment Conference in 1972, uh, the emergence of a transnational eco-industrial complex of billionaire foundations, of uh, transnational institutions, so on and so forth, you know, culminating, of course, in one sense, in the Brundtland Commission's report in 1987. This was a report, this was uh, a perspective that sought to deny deny imperialism and global inequality from the beginning. And so I think we see that, for instance, with this term, I imagine you'll ask me about it, the Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene mania has unfolded since uh, the around 2000, I think, uh, Sturmer and Crutzen's uh, landmark uh, article in, in the year 2000, 2001 kicks it off. And search you can search high and low for any account of the forever war that has been unfolding in that period amongst Anthropocene students. There are few exceptions to that. Uh, but you have in this period of over 500 foreign military interventions the U.S. has undertaken in its history. Over one third of those have occurred over this period. The U.S. deploys special forces units in three quarters of the world's countries. The Pentagon itself is the world's largest institutional consumer 
of uh, carbon uh, of, of uh, fossil fuels and emitter of carbon dioxide, but that's really the only the tip of the iceberg. The reason why you have a global network of over 800 military bases is to secure business as usual for the masters of the universe, as the economist calls them, uh, who gather at the world in Davos, in Switzerland, in the World Economic Forum, the Bilderberg Group, all these other transnational nodes of a transnational North Atlantic ruling class. In whose interest is it to have an unpredictable war? Yeah, well, that's uh, uh, it seems to be the case that whenever you have and we can look back for more than a century, but we can, as I as I've outlined in my essay on imperialism with and without cheap nature, you can see that when there are great empires whose access to cheap nature and access to the labor and resources necessary to engage in the expanded accumulation of capital and good business practices, when those possibilities are limited, then militarization unfolds. This is clearly the case with the United States, which has uh, which is now facing the end of dollar hegemony, how it's organized the world since the end of World War II and the Great Bretton Woods Agreements in 1944. Uh, and it's facing as widely, uh, as is widely uh, acknowledged, a multipolar world, one that it has tried to prevent for the past two decades. So the United States, more than any great empire in modern world history, is uh, has become really a military-industrial complex in which military power is increasingly necessary to buttress its competitive position across the world. And so the answer is that it, it has engaged in this pathological course a drive towards, well, really uh, uh, nuclear war, uh, which is where, by the way, that's where climate doomism gets its sense of end times is from post-war American nuclear hegemony, uh, that this drive towards nuclear war is is uh, uh, a, an attack on China's Belt and Road. And we can make criticisms of China's Belt and Road strategy, but that's essentially what we're seeing, not just in the Ukraine, but also in West Africa and many other places around the world. It's It kind of uh, would overshadow any other discussion in, 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 in some sense. But at the same time, I'm just wondering about recent conjecture, uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the, the growth and potential for all kinds of you know, natural capital schemes, of capitalizing nature, of, mm-hmm. of uh, nature offsets. It seems to be tremendous momentum now. Surely in its own right, there is tremendous potential, economic potential there, notwithstanding, as you say, the, the uh, changing economic relationship with China. Well, maybe you're seeing something that I don't. Uh, When I look at uh, the uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, this is a great handout to big capital. And yes, around the margins, you'll see a switch to so-called green energy forms and electric vehicles. But so what? That's not going to uh, do anything except for create a new market niche to allow for the endless accumulation of capital and then drive towards the planetary inferno and all manner of pathological and morbid symptoms to follow. So this can in no way, in my my assessment of American developments in particular, and we can talk about other countries as well, but in the American case, there is in no sense a shift 
from uh, away from business as usual. We know that the Biden administration has been greenlighting more fossil fuel extraction. It is uh, uh, a warmongering state. In fact, much more warmongering than the Trump administration. And it's uh, very much committed to business as usual. Ah, well, um, but again, maybe you're seeing something that I have not. I'm always open to hearing different. But uh, uh, we maybe come back to, uh, to elements of that. But you, you touched on a, a, a very important uh, uh, question, a very important idea, the idea of the Anthropocene. And as you say, uh, you know, grew from uh, the early 2000s. And uh, I guess the idea that that that. Uh, the geological uh, world has been fundamentally transformed by human activity. Now, this seems to have uh, tr- tremendous momentum. It's it's increasingly uh, used as a shorthand uh, and a way of looking at the climate and environmental issues that we're facing. What's the problem with it? What are the shortcomings with thinking and using that as a lens to look at the problems we have today? Well, there's an old expression, garbage in, garbage out. And uh, as Einstein would say, uh, perhaps apocryphally, uh, that the thinking that created the crisis is unlikely to solve it. So what is the Anthropocene, literally age of man? And the idea that uh, human beings come first and then interact with nature is a specific invention of early modern capitalism, roughly between the era of say, uh, uh, Columbus and Descartes. And this was an era in which man and nature had to be invented as a way not just of kind of whitewashing the underlying brutality and violence of the imperialist conquest. Uh, by the way, you're, you're in Dublin today. The, uh, Eng- in the English experience, the invention of man and nature comes out of the brutal waves of conquest and ethnic cleansing in Ireland, uh, and through which the uh, English never tired of reckoning the Irish as wild, as savage, as irrational, as warlike, as, in other words, living in a state of nature and in great need of being civilized. Of course, that's a view that uh, some English still hold. Can I just ask you, this is something I know that comes up in your work again and again. This I guess, well, call it dichotomy, distinction, this binary of man and nature. Yeah, can you just talk a little bit about that? I I guess it's, again, another shorthand people talk about. What are the roots of that distinction, and uh, do you think? Well, it's so ingrained in our thinking that it sounds silly or nitpicky or some like academic point to problematize it. But let's be clear that that man and nature as these separate essences, as these separate domains of human experience, that way of thinking was specifically invented after Columbus and especially in places like the English conquests and subordinations and partial genocides of uh, Ireland that one of the ways the English learned to be such bastards in imperialism and their civilizing project was by repeatedly replaying and elaborating this dualism, not just a distinction, but a dualism between man, humanity on the one side, and nature on the other. So when John Locke um, is in the Carolinas writing the Constitution for the Carolinas at the end of the 17th century, He specifically forbids English settlers from entering into contracts with indigenous peoples. Why? Because they lived in a state of nature. And in that little vignette, there is something hugely fundamental. Nature has 
nothing necessarily to do with what we think of as nature, the birds and the bees and the forests and the fields and all of that. Nature is a way of redefining the vast majority of humankind as savage, wild, warlike, irrational. This is famously captured in Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, written, I believe, in 1588, right in the thick of this profound gendered revolution through which uh, women were redefined as part of nature. Women's work was natural. It was therefore uh, unnecessary to pay or pay in any equitable sense for all of that labor, all of that cheap care, all of that uh, cheap reproductive labor uh, that was realized through this, this ideological violence of humans over on one side, nature on the other side. And oh, by the way, most human beings, Slavs, Irish, women, indigenous peoples, Africans, many other peoples uh, were reassigned to the realm of nature. In this era, it was called the uh, conflict between civilization and savagery. And uh, then right. in the 20th century, after World War II, it became development and undevelopment and undeveloped. So though, but, but new wine, old bottle. So this is, this is really fundamental when we start to talk about, well, uh, as the Guardian said recently, has humanity broken the climate system? No, humanity has not broken the climate system. The people, the institutions, the classes that are responsible for the transition from the Holocene to a post-Holocene climate are identifiable. They have names and addresses. We know who is responsible. So when the Guardian is doing its normal environmentalist liberal hand-wringing over humanity doing this and that, what they are in fact doing is defending the guilty, defending the culprits of not anthropogenic climate change, but capitalogenic climate change made by capital. Right. This is a, a, a key distinction that you make as well. The, there's a kind of flattening associated with the Anthropocene, which is it's, it's the humans that is a result. And you lose all uh, analysis of power relations and capital and so forth. And therefore, you talk about and analyze and many others uh, as well, this, the, what, what you call the capitalocene. What, what is that, Jason? Well, it's a poetics, for instance. It's an earth poetics, a geopoetics that challenges this largely unchallenged view, not just from mainstream folks, but even from many socialists who say, well, the problem is man and nature, and then we're going we're gonna to go from there. And so the capitalocene is a, a, a term that says, wait a minute. Is it really humans versus nature, or is this a problem of capitalogenic climate change? And what we have done around, I and others have in the world ecology conversation have done around this geopoetics of the capitalist scene is to begin to reconstruct an actual history of the origins of climate crisis. And that's fundamental because what we discovered is that the origins of climate crisis have to do with power and relations of power more than they do with the usual story of the Anthropocene, which is bright and ingenious Englishmen coming up with a steam engine, and then the steam engine goes out and transforms the world. That's a small part of the story. And 
what it does is it ultimately justifies a politics of climate justice and climate crisis that say, well, change the technology. We say, wait a minute, you have to look at the actual relations of power and production and reproduction in the web of life as they emerged after 1492. Right, right. When you call the web of life, what what are you talking about here, Jason? What we're saying is that we need to unthink this word nature. Nature is not only the most complex word in the language, as the great Welsh novelist and social theorist Raymond Williams once said, it's also the most dangerous word in the language. So to be reclassified as nature was amongst the most devastating things that one could experience. When the Spaniards went to the New World, and then later when the English were conquering North America, what they did was they forged a whole ideology, a cosmology that said Native people are part of nature, and therefore we can put them to work cheaply, we can steal their their language, we can steal their lands, we can uh, eradicate them, we can dispossess them, because we are bringing civilization. And of course, that has gone through many permutations over the centuries up through the neoliberal era and now whatever we want to call today that's continued again and again and again. That nature is the most dangerous word in the language. It is not only false in what it purports to to describe. It is hardwired. It is part of the source code, the software of capitalist power and profitability. Nature Claudia von Verhoff, the great German sociologist, once said, nature is everything the bourgeoisie does not want to pay for. So that that's the example of indigenous um, slavery, of women's work, of African slavery, of all forms of coercive and imperialist forms of conquest. And of course, what always follows is the reorganization of labor. Well, it's a kind of um, magic word, isn't it, really? You add it in front of any uh, other word and it, it transforms it, you know, capital, natural capital and natural environmental solutions. As, as long as it's natural, then it's got to be good. Precisely. And there's a lot of that going on. You see, for instance, coming out of these transnational networks, uh, nature positive or planetary stewardship, or, uh, you know, we can go on down the list of these uh, uh, programs which all purport to do what to save nature. Yeah. Now the the um and, and no better people to do it than the financiers and the large corporations. <laughs> of course. No, absolutely. Um. Uh, now, was the connection between, or is there between what I, I guess some people call the Great Acceleration, at least from a climate perspective? When does the problem begin? You know, what are the roots of it in 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 in, in time at least? Clearly, the clues in the the word the capitalist scene. It's it's the birth of capitalism. Is it uh, to do with the actual time frame of that, or or more the actual organization of capitalist and capital relations? So here's the thing about our politics and our assessment about the present. Virtually everything we need to know about those turns on one's assessment of the origins of a problem. So if you believe that the steam engine represents, say, the rotary steam engine in in the early 1780s, usually dated from 1784, is the key machine in year zero of the climate crisis, then your politics turn immediately to changing the technologies. And I like to say, if you shut down a coal-fired plant or a natural gas plant, you can slow global warming for a day. But if you 
revolutionize, if you transform the relations that gave rise to those coal plants, you can stop it for good. So we need to blow up the relations that generate pipelines and infrastructures of planetary of the planetary inferno. Uh, we, we need to look at the relations of those and transform them. So for us, we would look at the origins of uh, in, in looking at it from the standpoint of the capitalist scene and in the century and two and three after Columbus in 1492, we would look at the actual climate history. And one of the things that we see, and here we follow especially the work of the great geographers, Mark uh, Maslin and Simon Lewis, in defining what they call the Orbis Spike. We see that the capitalist uh, genocides of the New World, which were very much slaving-induced, very tightly related to silver mining production complexes, sugar plantation systems, uh, stock raising, and other manufacturing in places like uh, New Spain, you can see that the flashpoints of the great dying in this period were the flashpoints of the advance of commodity production and exchange, of course, carried forward by the barrel of many, many guns. What this did, as Lewis and Maslin point out, is uh, uh, through the genocides, leaving untouched soils, uh, forests grew back, was a significant reduction in carbon dioxide concentrations that reinforced other changes in the Earth's climate system at the time, which was in the midst of what's called the Little Ice Age. But the added bit of the Orbis spike, really the origins, if you're looking at consequences of modernity, the origins of those consequences in the 16th and early 17th century, you see the coldest, most unfavorable period of the last 8,000 years. And lo and behold, this was also the period when all the major elements of capitalism cohere around class, and gender, and race, and empire, and science, and we could go down the list, uh, that this was the era when capitalism coheres roughly between 1550 and 1700. Not coincidentally, this is also the era of the coldest moment of the Little Ice Age. What's the connection there, Jason? Because yeah. when you look at the kind of time frames, the impact of human activity on nature, are, are you saying that, this, that there's a, a direct relationship there within this particular time frame? Oh, very clearly, very rapid. We are looking at, within the span of two centuries, the greatest environment-making revolution since the origins of agriculture. Uh, and let's put it in the, in the mid-Holocene somewhere, maybe uh, six, six to 8,000 years ago in the emergence of class societies. And uh, only this was much, much more dramatically compressed. The uh, uh, destruction of American indigenous peoples through capitalist slaving transformed, uh, led to the greatest crisis, the, the first great climate crisis of the times. And it's important to remember, leftists, mainstream folks don't really talk about climate history and the history of civilization. But here's the basic fact that in the northern hemisphere, you can look at Europe, you can look at uh, um, across the Eurasian steppe, you can look at China, that great moments of unfavorable climate change are moments of tremendous political volatility, instability and crisis. So that's exactly so in this in this era of the 16th and 17th centuries, the era of Maslin and Lewis's Orbis spike, you have 
the first capitalogenic contributions to other elements of natural forcing that produced the um, unprecedented moment of political volatility from Paris to Beijing. This is the Fronde in France. This is the English Civil War. This is the invasion of Ireland uh, um, after 1541. This is or the, the latest invasion of Ireland. And this is a moment of profound crisis and instability. Now, the only way that could be fixed and capitalism could survive was to drive hard and fast towards the tropical and subtropical zones, which is essentially and exactly what they did. So the great sugar plantation revolutions begin really in the, in the Western Hemisphere after 1570 in Brazil, then carried forth to the West Indies. Those are the revolutions that in turn finance the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and early 19th century. So this is all connected, very, very rapid. This illusory idea that that capitalism was not fundamentally changing geobiological life on a planetary scale before 1945 is not only false, but absolutely destructive in a friend, uh, essentially an ideological ally of the greenwashers. Between 1492 and 1610, which was when Maslin and Lewis stayed the Orbis spike, 95% of the indigenous peoples of the Americas uh, died. Now, the old argument was this. Microbes hitched a ride with the conquistadors and the priests and the merchants and the planters. And then those microbes spread across the population in what Alfred Crosby famously called virgin soil epidemics. And whoops. All the Indians died. It's not our fault was basically the dominant narrative. Now, we know from a generation of extraordinary work by historians and epidemiologists and others that this picture is largely false, that, yes, some horrific share would have died regardless of the social history of the region. So if if, uh, Europeans had come and spread the virus but not conquered, Probably a third, give or take, depending on the regions uh, of the of indigenous peoples would have died. So there's a big difference between a third and 95 percent. And that not, that increment, that extraordinary extra, you know, 60 percent, uh, 60 percentage points was due specifically to slaving to village reduction or reconcentration strategies, essentially to the whole apparatus of militarized trade and commerce, and then the construction of great silver mining and sugar planting systems in the Americas. So this is very important in our imaginary because we think that 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 uh, human beings were not transforming the climate in fundamental ways before 1945. This is a great example. But we can also go back to the dawn of class society and civilizations in the urban and agricultural revolutions six, seven, eight thousand years ago, when the Holocene itself was stabilized because of the carbonizing impacts of settled agriculture beginning about eight, seven, six thousand years ago. Think about uh, uh, China, uh, the Middle Eastern Sumerian city states those kinds of dynamics, which essentially formed a kind of Archimedean lever of carbonization, in this case, which stabilized the Holocene and prevented a much more rapid return along the lines of previous interglacial periods to a big ice age. When you are uh, look 
under underlying this you talk a lot about the the the, the impact of the pursuit of, of economic growth something that uh, i i've covered in, in many interviews in this podcast and i guess the underlying logic of capital accumulation can you make that connection and explain how growth and capital accumulation are at the root of many of these problems as you see it jason well growth is a fetish and growth is a liberal category that in the 20th century we know goes back to the work of john maynard Keynes working in the India Home Office um, right after World War I. So the India Home Office was the successor to the East India Company. And there's a long history of imperialist economic thought, going back to Maltus, of course, around that whole enterprise. But also fetishes of national accounting and growth um, also have a lineage that goes back to the English conquest uh, and subordination of Ireland in the 17th century. Uh, and, and so we want to be very clear that when we are looking at the source of problems, we want to make sure that we don't use fetishized representations of this. So growth is a kind of accounting and it can tell us some things and not others. We know that political administrations uh, all around the world regularly recalibrate rates of economic growth and the criteria for economic growth to suit their interests. What we really want to look at are the dynamics of capital accumulation in a Marxist sense. And this is for several reasons. One is that for Marx, Capital accumulation itself was fundamentally linked not only to relations of power, that is to class relations, but also to the relations of the web of life. And so we understand from that standpoint that the accumulation of capital in money form is related not simply to wage work, to work and life within a cash nexus, but also to a huge apparatus of unpaid work. And that's very, very important when we're coming to grips with a climate crisis that is not merely a crisis of economic growth. I think that that picks a wrong element out. Yes, there is a dynamic of capital accumulation that is increasingly in crisis because of the climate crisis. But the climate crisis is what I call a climate trinity of the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, and climate apartheid. In some growth tends to be a much too anodyne and sterile concept that what we call growth is, in fact, the bloody and violent struggle of classes and invokes not only economic relations, but far-flung relations of cultural and political power. So that for every climate class moment, we have to look at dynamics of climate imperialism, climate apartheid, climate patriarchy. That gives us a very different assessment, a very different politics linked to to many of your arguments as well, is this question of the underlying crisis tendencies of capitalism. And how do you think that they help us understand our contemporary environmental emergencies? Well, so many of us are familiar with this language of externalization and the critique of externalization, that you have a factory that's uh, producing toxic effluents, and the owners of that factory want to get rid of those toxics as cheap as possible. So they externalize it. They dump it into a river. They put it into the air. They essentially use the web of life as a toxic waste dumping ground. And by the way, they use our bodies as well. We know this from concentrations of heavy metals, uh, massively falling testosterone levels, a countdown to zero fertility in the capitalist north, as Shauna Swan has uh, shown us in her book, Countdown. We have all of these dynamics of externalization. So that's a moment of waste of toxification. 
But linked to that is a long-term process of investment that uses political and cultural power to put other webs of life, including human webs of life, to work for free or low cost. So the usual story that environmentalists tell is of degradation, pollution, toxification, and all of that's very, very real and relevant. What it tends to ignore is the labor question, the work question that is the beating heart of capitalism and every other class society that we've known. But it takes, it assumes pathological forms under capitalism. Capitalism is a system of putting natures of all kinds to work for free or low cost. And so in the world ecology conversation, we talk about cheap nature. And that weaves these two moments together that we've been talking about. One is low in price. So we talk about cheap food, energy, raw materials, labor, low in price, by the way, not for all of us listening, but for the 1%. And so there's a price moment of it, but the price moment of it is unthinkable except in relation to systems and structures of power and domination, of political power, but also of cultural power around racism and sexism that is crucially oriented towards suppressing uh, the uh, uh, inequitable remuneration for workers. And that does two things. It helps. So there's a political economic moment, but there's also a cultural moment of devaluation that's going on. And until we begin to put those two halves of the amulet together, if you will, we will have a very, very one-sided kind of, cl- of cr- climate politics. And we will have those people insisting on an economic or class politics separated from those insisting on the politics of racial and gender justice. In fact, those are two moments of the same process. And this is what cheap nature as a way of thinking and as a slogan gets to. And let me just emphasize this. Cheap nature is ultimately about labor. And this is what imperialists have always been concerned with. Yes, they want the land, but they can't do anything with the land without the labor. And so it's always about that labor relation. And a huge share of that must be committed to delivering work at very, very low or or unpaid um, prices. Right. I'm tempted to ask you about the technological possibilities now of increasing robotics and so forth and the the role that labor plays when we have those alternatives as well does that change your uh, analysis jason it absolutely does not and in fact one of the interesting things is that the emergence of what we know as environmentalism in the 1970s coincided with a, a great wave of attention on a, an automated future, a robotic future. This captivated the attention of people like Alvin Toffler, a very mainstream thinker of Marxists like Ernest Mandel. And instead, as we know, instead of a neoliberal world of robot factories, we got the global sweatshop. And this has indeed been the overwhelming orientation of neoliberal capitalism, not towards automation, but towards a new and more brutal forms of putting natures and human nature to work for low, uh, uh, for low cost. That's really have, we have to reckon with that. Now, at the same time, we can glimpse some of the technological possibilities. However, those are very much fettered by the unfolding dynamic of, of capitalism that I've called the great implosion. So the climate crisis 
isn't like the linear end of a frontier expansion where you come closer and closer and closer to a plateau. That's not what the climate crisis is. It is rather a great implosion. It is this kind of epical and nonlinear reversal of the situation that obtained for five centuries under capitalism. That is, use the web of life as a way to advance labor productivity and to reduce costs all the way around. And when you do that, you open up tremendous opportunities for capital investment, for capital accumulation. Now, what's happening is instead of the web of life being a source of cost reduction, costs of production are increasing. And that's a very, very epical transformation of capitalism. We see this above all in agriculture, where already eight years of agricultural productivity have been lost as a result strictly of climate change's biophysical impact. And there are all manner of other political, cultural, uh, toxic regime uh, uh, forces uh, affecting world agriculture too. But just from climate change, Ortiz Bobea and her colleagues in the journal Nature Climate Change about two years ago uh, said, we have seven to eight years of productivity lost. Now, why is that important? Because everything about capitalism is built on a cheap nature agricultural a productivity regime of producing more and more food with less and less labor power. So even if, to go to your example, we could wave, the capitalists could wave a wand and automate all the factories overnight, they would still have to deal with this fundamental problem of the world food system, which is set up to reproduce working classes very, very cheaply. Now, I wanted to talk uh, about uh, your concept of cheap nature, and uh, if you can, um, you know, maybe explore that a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, in your book, it's it's seven cheap things you talk about. Uh, you know, cheap labor, cheap nature. But I, I'm, I'm interested in the cheap nature uh, idea, um, and I talk a little bit about that. And 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 I just wonder also with this now increasingly, uh, I guess, neoliberal financialization. Uh, um, uh, looking at uh, biodiversity as a you know asset management issue, as a, a major report in the UK recently said, and this financialization of putting a value on na- nature. So if nature is cheap because it hasn't been valued and it's been excluded, you know why not uh, be cheer when when people are saying let's put a value on it, let's let's value the fields and let's value the trees, and then they'll be treated, you know, then uh, businesses and so forth will treat them with respect and they'll be treated in an economic manner. Right, right. I mean, this fantasy is a structural constant in the history of capitalism, going back all the way to Adam Smith. If the world ever resembled Adam Smith's world of perfect information flows and everything else that's uh, premised and presumed in neoclassical economics today, capitalism would fall apart. Nobody would be able to make a profit. And then we go to, for instance, feminist socialist arguments around wages for housework, which were always revealed, uh, always sought to reveal the basic absurdity of how uh, that argument you just laid out very well um, unfolds. If If capitalism was ever forced to internalize wages for housework and uh, the full cost of social reproductive labor, again, it would be impossible to accumulate capital. So there are these absurdities that are, I think, uh, very dishonestly. Uh, It's either a dishonest argument or if they have intellectual clarity, they're just fooling themselves on a colossal scale. That The answer to to capitalism's uh, social, ecological labor crises is more capitalism. 
is absurd on the face of it. There's no evidence that in the neoliberal era, when more and more and more of human life has been capitalized, that uh, there's more sustainability. There's just not. And indeed, as more and more of the web of life becomes capitalized, the underlying stagnationary tendencies of capital accumulation have also um, intensified. Why? Because at the end of the day, every great wave of economic revolution, of industrial revolution in the history of the modern world has depended upon massive frontiers of cheap labor, energy, raw materials, and food, what I call the four cheaps. So in this rendering, cheap nature is not a thing. As we say in Seven Cheap Things, cheap nature is a strategy that makes other webs of life cheap. And cheap in that double sense of to devalue in a cultural and ethical sense and also to cheapen in price for the very richest. So that's important. And it leads us to a different way of seeing the sources, the underlying sources and drivers of our climate crisis today. Just very quickly, this example of the Industrial Revolution where everyone, including many Marxists, want to say, oh, it all begins in England with the steam engine, with this, with coal. There's something called fossil capital. Not even Marx, by the way, held to that position. Uh, Marx said, well, you have to have cotton first. So really, if we look at, well, where did the cotton come from? It came from the revival of slavery in the American South, after the American Revolution, the invention of a cotton gin, which increased labor productivity 50-fold, it rested on the expulsion of indigenous peoples, a new and expanded form of slavery, of the, the appropriation of a specific strain of cotton that had been developed by indigenous peoples over the previous centuries. And so that's a great example of like what was the source of the Industrial Revolution? Well, there were many, but one of them was this violence of cheap cotton, slavery, indigenous expulsion that underpins the whole textile-based wave of manufacturing in England in the early 18th century. That's what drives the Industrial Revolution, in other words, is the Plantation Revolution. And that then lets us, like I said, we have to overcome this divide between a kind of class and race um, uh, perspective that puts racialized labor at the beating heart of climate crisis today and in our politics today. It seems that certainly in the corporate world and indeed uh, with respect to governments with goals like net zero, so much of the focus is on uh, projects in the global south and uh, they're increasingly being uh, targeted for various kind of carbon offset projects, you know, uh, countries that are rich in forests. And also we're starting to see now with the uh, electric vehicles and so forth, uh, new minerals. So there's a, a new wave of, uh, I guess you would call uh, exploitation there. The other element, I suppose, is that World Bank and the IMF, now they're using their levers to try and tie in countries to get access to their resources. This is a great question. We tend to think that it's new. But in fact, the origins of this political project, which is to basically create sustainability on the backs of the global south, go back to, I'm going to sound like a broken record, the first Earth Day, and then the preparations for the uh, first major UN conference in Stockholm on the human environment in 1972, that the global south at the time 
said this is this environmentalist project is essentially an effort to suppress our growth and to limit the possibilities for the for our economic development. Now, there's obviously a very right wing version of that and a more left wing version of that. And uh, in my teaching, I often counterpose the limits to growth, which everyone has uh, heard about to the work of Herrera and his team from Argentina. The title is Catastrophe or New Society. I think that's uh, what it was. And basically what they were pointing out is that the whole limits to growth, natural resource scarcity model that had been advanced by very, very powerful European and American capitalist interests was misleading at best and was at worst part of of this political project that we needed to take into consideration differentials in power and social justice in order to move forward. So what we're seeing, I think, with all these carbon offsets with red and red plus and and many other uh, elements, the land saving orientation of sustainability development uh, practice uh, is essentially what you just outlined is a new phase of green imperialism. And let's remember Elon Musk saying, well, we will coup whoever we want. And shortly after that, there was indeed a U.S.-backed coup of Evo Morales in Bolivia, home to considerable lithium deposits. So this is what I worry about when uh, environmentalists in the global north and even many eco-socialists these days are talking about some kind of environmental transition, but they're not taking seriously this longer history of imperialism. So we have you know Marx in the Anthropocene and Kohei Saito talking about degrowth communism, but they're not foregrounding the relations of imperialism, which are really what has generated and held together this capitalogenic system of devastating climate change, biodiversity destruction, and so on and so forth. When you uh, put together this picture and distill these these relationships, the social, cultural, economic, ecological, very complex, interconnected webs here. How do we change this, Jason? Well, I think the first step is clarity over the origins and development of the problem. And there's not much clarity around that. And the other part is that we need to develop very sober, even-handed assessments of political movements over the past century that have attempted to engage in revolutionary transformation. So in other words, we have to step out of the shadow of Cold War anti-communism in which socialist projects were 100% evil, 100% worthless, and we need to begin to look at those projects, at national liberation projects in the global South across the past century, uh, political movements that attempted to engage in fundamental change and to look at those histories. And especially we open this conversation with the question of war. And in my view, uh, environment, mainstream environmentalism has been a handmaiden of empire and warmongering uh, since its origins in the first Earth Day in 1970. But we have to begin to look at the role of imperialism and counterinsurgency and counterrevolution across the past century if 
we are going to move forward with climate justice. Uh, James Connolly has a great quote, and you may remember it better than I do. But he says, look, when we go out on strike and we threaten to take away a few days profit from the capitalists, look at how they send the thugs out to beat us. Imagine if we're trying to take all of their wealth and power away from us. And we know exactly how the wealthy and powerful behave in those circumstances. So I think that that this dominant view in the North around eco-socialist and Green New Deal degrowth um, circles has this rather naive view that if uh, only we uh, win a parliamentary majority, we're going to pass all or we're going to legislate eco-socialism, we're going to socialize finance and reorient the whole powers of society to a green and just transition, that the masters of the universe are going to take this lying down. And so I think we need intellectual clarity, not just around the broadly defined economic and environmental history and the origins of climate crisis and the origins of capitalism. That's crucial. But we also need to look at a century of struggle, bloody struggle between the forces of revolution and counter-revolution and draw out some lessons from that because the masters of the universe are not going to go peacefully and quietly into the night. Well, yeah, it's, it's very interesting you say that. And we started the discussion also with, I guess, this uh, question about what's on your mind. Where do you see, uh, what makes you optimistic? Where are the seeds of hope, shall we say, when you look around now, Jason? I think that the one, one of the big seeds of hope is the final breaking of American unipolar hegemony. Now, that doesn't uh, require us to be rosy-eyed about the rise of China or Belt and Road. It doesn't, doesn't require that at all. But it, it means that we are at a moment of transition, at a minimum of transition from, uh, from one world uh, hegemonic order to another geopolitical order. And those moments of transition historically, going all the way back to the 16th century with the, uh, uh, the great uh, wars of Charles V and, and uh, Philip II, that these moments have been wrapped up with political revolt, political questioning. And so that's important. I think all around the world, we are seeing social movements in the global South, especially recognize the importance of imperialism, recognize the need for a political strategy, and they're searching for syntheses that will put together the questions of social power and justice, environmental power and justice, and really understand that all relations of power and emancipation have to do with humans and the rest of life. And that there's a new, not only a new world is possible, but in order to imagine a new world, we will need a different way of thinking, a more dialectical, a more relational way of thinking. I think that that will provide ways of seeing connections between maybe fractured social movements between work movements of uh, dock workers and office workers and uh, peasants in the global South and uh, others around the world, that we can begin to understand the connective tissues of the web of life and that capital wants to cheapen it all. We don't have to let them. That's a great vision, Jason. When Gramsci wrote about the old is dying, the new cannot be born and the interregnum, are we in the interregnum, in your view? Are we seeing the morbid symptoms? Are we going to see more morbid symptoms over the coming years? So in my view, absolutely, yes. Capitalism has entered what I call its zombie phase. So it's dead inside, but it's still moving and still very, very 
deadly. Now, what does that mean if we say it's dead inside? Essentially, the key fundamental way that great crises of accumulation have been resolved over the past five centuries is by conquering, occupying, and ransacking new frontiers of cheap nature. It was these new frontiers of cheap nature that were the basic and fundamental condition for solving the great problem of capitalism, which is to accumulate more capital than it can reinvest profitably. So it goes to China, it goes to South Asia, it goes to the Americas, uh, and uh, uh, finds new sources of labor, food, energy, and raw materials, puts those together in not one, but many so-called great accelerations. You asked me about the Anthropocene. Oh, the great acceleration, which is basically a new branding of uh, the post-war golden age. Well, the great acceleration there was not the first, and we need to take that seriously. One of the things that's happened in this moment and I think it has a lot to do with environmentalist politics of fear and doom, is that we don't actually look at the history of climate. So when you ask me, well, what gives me hope? One of the basic facts that I've come around uh, uh, in my investigations is by looking at moments of significantly unfavorable climate change from the Bronze Age crisis in 1200 BCE to the crisis of the Roman West, the crisis of feudalism, the crisis of the 17th century, as we were talking about. These were moments of political possibility where the ruler's hold on power and production uh, was overturned. And so the crisis of the Roman West, you had peasants come in and they would occupy the villas, they would repurpose them, they reestablished village life after it had been essentially wiped out by Roman power. This was a golden age in the life and well-being for millions of people in Central and Western Europe because climate and its own class and Romans class contradictions were all coming together to signal the end of that mode of production. So moments of climate crisis can, yes, be quite brutal, but there are also moments of political possibility, and we need to really take that to heart. That's a fascinating vision, a hopeful tone moment to finish the interview. Thank you so much for your time today. So much uh, to discuss, so much more for maybe another another discussion, another interview. I wish you all the very best with your ongoing work, Jason, and thank you. I hope so. It's been a thrill to talk. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today... The world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities 